You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Nipe here with Always. Typical Lydia. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 1979 Stephen King adaptation TV movie classic. Total classic. Salem's Lot. Ah. I'll take my Barlow hiss. That's a good Barlow hiss. You mean practicing or is that just how you wake up in the morning? That's how I try to talk to girls. Yeah, this is how this is how Wes wakes up in the evening in because the evening. you are a bit of a night walker, like a vampire mm-hmm. working at night, sleeping all day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, maybe that is my kinship with with vampires. I know that a lot of people who like horror are always just like, "Ooh, I'm a total vampire," but I definitely feel. Much like I occupy the space at night because I do work at night and I am most familiar with the city at night. And also I feel comfortable being at night. Like I'm comfortable in the darkness. Like when I'm uncomfortable and I'm, I'm anxiety is, is driving me nuts. It's when I'm out in the daytime and there's all these people around and shit. I love the quiet of the night. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. maybe that's what it is. Partially and like in the shift and. The fact, like, what what's weird to me is that you don't look like a vampire. Like, you can yeah. meet some very gothling goths, and they look like vampires, yeah. and they have night shifts, yeah. and it is very fitting, mm-hmm. especially if they jokingly mm-hmm. say that they're a vampire. But you don't strike a person as you look like a daywalker. I do. You're yeah. passing. I'm passing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I walk. I'm like Blade. I walk between the worlds. He totally uh, does. I feel terrible getting up during the daytimes when we record. <laughs> And I mean, I'm one of those night loving types as well. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't know it to like look at the legacy of my writing and just the gothy life shit, you know, being a hereditary goth. Mm-hmm. But I'm a morning person and I like waking up super duper early, like five thirty six. That's yeah. awesome. I love that. You like to put around, do your do you clean in and uh writing. How, writing, coffee. It's the same quiet of the morning. Mm-hmm. that we appreciate of the evening as well. You know, when I was really little, I used to uh, wake up before anybody else. I think a lot of kids, I don't know, because you had you have siblings, but like uh, I grew up with you know, a brother and a sister and both my parents living in the house and my grandmother living in the house. And so it was a busy house. And I would still wake up 30 minutes to an hour before everybody else when I was quite young. And I know that a lot of times really young kids you know, they'll wake up super early and like run to their parents' bedroom and like fucking wake them up and just be like, but I wasn't like that. I would, my routine and it was particularly Saturday morning was like my ritual. And I'm like seven, I'm fucking years old. Right. And here's my morning ritual. I would wake up and I wouldn't want anyone else to wake up. I would want everyone else to stay asleep because the quiet time I would sit and I would watch cartoons very quietly and I'd eat my bowl of cereal. I wouldn't talk. I loved it. Yeah, that was my favorite time in the morning, too, before mm-hmm. anyone else got up. Mm-hmm. Go watch something quietly, super quietly. Mm-hmm. I was very good at turning on the TV because it was a pull knob. That oh, was also the volume. Those, yeah. And 
you know, turn it all the way down and then pull it gently so no one would hear me turn it on mm-hmm. and then wait. And yeah, that was my favorite time. Yeah. The only thing was when my TV turned on, we had one of those old timey CRTs too. And no matter what, you would turn it on and it would go, like it would yeah. make that spark sound of like the power igniting and shit. But anyway, fuck all that. We're not here to talk about like what a weird uh, fucking edgelord I was at seven years old. It's just about how much you like the quiet and how much, how now, now that you are a goddamn vampire, mm-hmm. you can watch TV whatever fucking time you want. I can. Yeah. Uh, I do try to like keep my neighbors in mind though. Uh, but... Uh, I love vampires. You know I love vampires. I love vampire films a lot. Obviously, they they transfixed me as a kid. And the older, the better, obviously. Like, I'm a huge fan of Nosferatu. And the more monstrous vampires are, the more I like them. Again, plugging Night Face. The oh, reason well, why The reason why I like your writing when you write vampires is you write monstrous vampires. They're pretty beastie. They're pretty beastie. And I, there's, I'm always going to have a soft spot for that frilled cuff type vampire. Sure. But yeah, yeah. there's not as many beastly vampires or their complete revenants. And mm-hmm. I want something that is still has some shred of humanity to it so we can have all those parallels that we like to draw between mm-hmm. us at our darkest hours and vampires, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But I still have that hunter, bloodlust, animal thing going mm-hmm. on bloodlust is what i would really describe your vampires as having because you you're right and i was gonna say that but obviously like i'd rather you talk about your characters than me uh they have that they can hold a conversation they can pass yeah. i mean your your main characters pass for human uh most of the time but then it almost it kind of is like if if a serial killer in a way, like the very grotesque, uh, clinical, surgical, you know, in some cases, a serial killer who can walk around in the daytime and looks just like you and me, but then also has like this hideous secret. This hideous secret, not only do they have the, the workings of one of the most dissectiest dissecting of serial killers, uh, I'm thinking of one scene in particular, and I, but, uh, um, they also have, uh, uh, they're also a vampire. And so you get those, like, you know, bare paw swipe bottom jaws off type scenes too, yeah. right? Which I love those. I like just like this idea of just like half someone's face uh, gets knocked off and shit. It's and cool it's almost shit. more terrifying if they don't typically have the things like a huge claws and they're not like gigantic and they don't sparkle. I'm, ta- I'm telling you things. like the, some, I used to not get criticized, uh, but people would wonder the aesthetic of, you know, some of the characters that I'd created, like, you know, like Teresa is like a very small, she's a teenage girl. She's very small. Mm-hmm. She's, occupies a space in which she has substantially higher strength than a normal person does. But I didn't want to make her like a huge hulking person because I grew up watching like a lot of stuff from Japan where that's very common. Like it's like uh, the trope is muscles are meaningless. And again, with vampires, it's very cool to see like, you know, people who have that look frail in comparison that have, you know, are many times stronger than a human being. Mm -hmm. And much like if a grizzly bear were to paw your face, it would be the same type of thing. Yeah. And this film TV movie occupies a very similar space because Barlow one way in the TV movie, a different way in the book. 
Very different. Very, very different. And and one is more of like that sophisticated. Uh, I was comparing from the way the descriptions, because let me, for, big surprise, I've never read Salem's Lot. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, he was described as that, uh, I forgot the name of the show again, but it was Dark, not Dark Souls. Dark but Shadows. Dark Shadows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That vampire soap opera. And yes, kids, there was one uh, back in the 1970s. And you might be familiar with, they redid it with like, Johnny Depp years later. But. Which was kind of a, a funnier. It was even funnier. And yeah. More slapsticky. Um, mm-hmm. the, if you're a fan of Adam's Family, the old yeah. black and white Adam's yeah. Family, then you might enjoy Dark Shadows. Yeah. but Bar- and, and Barla was like that. Frilled cuffs, sophisticated. Someone who... Uh, an orator. Someone, can speak words. <laughs> yeah. Barlow, on the other hand, is much more akin to, you know, like Werner Herzog's... Uh, uh, Nosferatu, a symphony, and looking to, quite yeah. similar to yeah. Nosferatu as yeah. well. Yeah, and and Warlock. Uh, yeah, and the interesting thing the 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 Nosferatu remake from like Werner Herzog came out in 1979. So there was a, this was a banner year for bald, pointy eared vampires. Well, shit, represent yo. <laughs> I, I guess that's oh what the kids God. say, right? I don't know yeah. if they do. Let's. I'm so scared right now. Don't do that ever again. Well, it was 1979. I would have been hip back then. <laughs> Cutting edge. You would have. Yeah. You would have been Marty McFly. I was like, oh my God. It's well, like your kids are gonna love this. Exactly. Um. I, that, that's really cool. I haven't seen. Uh, and considering how much I adore Werner Herzog's work, mm. I've never watched the remake. I think it's oh man. Yeah. I we both know we've done we've covered uh, 1922's Nosferatu on this show before and we all know that that like I've said it a million times one of my favorite vampire films of all time this is an equal standing as far as I'm concerned. Huh. In 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 a like it is impossible to watch the remake of Nosferatu from 1979 and not have to agree every aspect of this film was improved. The only thing that I would say, the ending is quite different. So you would need to um, be sort of mentally prepared for that. But in this, the terms of like the tragedy for like an emo fucking kid as me, like nothing was cooler than than listening to a, a, a hideous vampire like talk, like lament the loneliness of immortality and shit. And I'm just like fucking so engrossed in it. Um, yeah. No, I'll definitely have to watch it yeah. now. I got the, I got it on Blu-ray, so you know if you ever want. I'd rather watch that than Warhol's Dracula, which I have seen <laughs> for whatever reason. Um, yeah, but um, so this is um, this Salem's Lot story really captured my imagination as a kid, and it captured a lot of people's imaginations. Although, do you remember the first time? First of all, I have two questions for you as the Stephen King fan like proper fan i'm i'm yeah. like a i'm a carpetbagger i've shown up like, and we both grew up with walls lined with stephen king books we yeah, both grew thank, up with that and i to took it and ran with it you <laughs> did all. you did i wish I, I like now i'm kind of embarrassed that i didn't read more when i had like access to all of these like probably first don't or second us. edition the second hand stores will always have our mom's libraries for us yeah um but as a as a as a proper uh Stephen King fan not like a smarmy one like I was when I didn't even really read a shit um when did you read Salem's Lot for the first time because it's a chunky book too yeah it's not it's not huge like Tommy knockers or it yeah. but it isn't uh 
like it's it's about the same size as Pet Cemetery, if I recall. Yeah. Uh, we had a first edition hardcover. My grandmother's. My goodness. I don't know where it is anymore. It might have gotten destroyed because a lot of our books got like lost to uh, mildew at one point. Yeah. But this was a red, dark, like a really like a dark red, blood red sort of thing. I don't remember mm. if there was a dust jacket because it was on the shelf since I was a kid, right? So mm. it was bought new and there yeah. it sat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was. A book that I, one of those books that kept my attention and I wanted to read it. I don't know why it wasn't the first Stephen King book I read. I read Sal- or I read Pet Cemetery first. Mm. But then I did read Salem's Lot, but I was very young. So I, it's definitely needing a reread for me because mm. I was super, super young. And I remember asking my mom words, like I did with a lot of Stephen King books, mm-hmm. and be like, what does this mean? What is miasma? What is this? What does mm-hmm. that mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. I did read it a very, very long time ago, but it holds a very, very special place in my mind in the hierarchy of Stephen King in regards to my learning Stephen King's writing because that book was just one of those books I wasn't allowed to read. That That's a book for adults. No, you can't read it. Oh, mm-hmm. That's making it way more tantalizing. Exactly, which it wouldn't have been that scary. Pet Cemetery has a lot more things that scare a kid in it dark book yeah yeah it's everything from everything that kids are afraid of not only death of like seeing themselves in death because uh um gage is so fucking young but also the death of a fucking pet like and that's the death of a pet and um moms and dads having a secret life i think that's even the other scary thing or the frailty of somebody who isn't a healthy individual not Mm -hmm. as many people grow up with someone um having spinal meningitis in a back bedroom Mm. so that's a completely alien thing to a lot of people Mm -hmm. having Mm -hmm. anyone that's in sort of a hospice care in the home Mm -hmm. like that is terrifying zelda's terrifying to adults and everyone around but like and the description of zelda but like having a parent be afraid of something let alone a secret life Mm -hmm. and watching terrifying uh, parents fail yeah like that's the thing like uh, yeah you're right there's a lot of um the, the the whole like my parents will protect me and my parents will do this and my parent my daddy's the greatest daddy and then a whole book about how now nah, they're just people and they make mistakes just like you and me and sometimes they can't protect you even if they want to so that's a yeah there's a lot of heady uh, concepts there for chibi lids to, oh, to totally. get into and it, not just chibi lids like recently um we've noticed on in booktube land if if people follow my typical books booktube and book they review should. channel Um, There's a lot of other horror channels, quite a few female-fronted horror channels in the booktube world on YouTube. And there was a tag floating around um, created by a girl, Alex, that goes by the handle Hey Little Thrifter. And (laughs) she had done the horror booktube tag, and it's a fantastic tag. And it seems that a lot of the, the female booktubers have have been doing this. And all like one of the questions is like, um, what is the first horror book you read? And so many of them is Pet Cemetery. Mm. So many of them. And I, you would think, especially because there's a like broad age range, mm. um, that everyone's firsts would be like Goosebumps or something, or like Edgar Allan Poe, mm-hmm. which I think 
I'd probably mark. I'd ground Poe as one of the first, but the first like novel that I picked up. It was yeah. a bona fide horror novel that said horror on the spine was Pet Cemetery, and same with a yeah. lot of girls. Mm-hmm. I don't know so much with with men because they don't seem to get that question, but. Well, I can say for me personally, I've only read uh, a little bit of Stephen King, but Pet Cemetery was the first book that I read as well. Hmm. So I don't know what that means, but... Is it because there's a cat on the cover? That's what me and Amy have sort of discerned. Um, I was intrigued by the title, I think. Yeah. And I had also... Um, I think if memory serves me, it would have been... And again, this harkens back to, uh, there's a, there's a reference to Salem's Lot, how I got into the TV, the movie that is to this. And I guess I may as well just mention it now. The Simpsons. Ah. The Simpsons referenced. <laughs> outside the window. Exactly. This, like, thanks to The Simpsons and their pop culture references, uh, for their treehouses of terror, yeah. they make references to Pet Cemetery. And they make references to Salem's Lot. Both things I sought out. It's it's almost like found money in your couch cushion. Because you're just like, oh, that seems really interesting. That seems kind of cool. And oh, I liked this in The Simpsons. I thought that was funny. And, it was, and the story seems interesting. Oh, look, it's right over there. Mm-hmm. So you can just pick up the book. And, and there it is. And so that's how come I did it. Same with Salem's Lot, where it was like... You would look at the TV guide and you would see a photo of this kid floating outside of a foggy window. And you're like, oh, I know that. It's from The Simpsons. <laughs> and and then... Lovely. And then and then it's like, Salem's Lot, tonight at 8. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, that's what they're referencing. Yeah. Yeah, I'll watch that. Yeah. And, and, and so that... That, um, you know, I always want to, like, give credit to where credit's due. Because even, like, when th- referential humor... It sometimes can irk people. They don't think it's comedy or they don't, whatever they think. But like a lot, same thing with like what I'll always give to remakes. These things are gateways into the original content. Especially because that referential humor in this day and age works in a very fantastic way. And I was talking with Chris about this not long ago about like, what is the value difference between seeing something that you grew up with referenced in comedy and getting your chuckle out of it in whatever way you, you see and not knowing the thing and still getting your chuckle out of it and mm-hmm. working backwards to discover the thing. Like which is more valuable and which is uh, makes that comedy more viable. I don't know. Like it's, it's an interesting way to think about it because pretty soon we're going to ha- be beyond anyone that grew up with any of these things that are referenced in The Simpsons. Let's say the first like 10 seasons of The mm-hmm. Simpsons. Um no one will remember what they are. Mm-hmm. We still find all those things funny, or they just assume that it's from there. I don't know. Anyway, what I yeah. thought was cool is as a kid, I knew enough about the English language to understand the translation of the word lot as, to me, as like your lot in life, not a place. Like, I didn't think of it as a lot, like, of land. Oh. I thought of it as, like, Salem's lot. So I thought, like, Salem was a person. So it was, like, Salem's lot. Oh, yeah. And it was, like, going to be a Regency horror or something in my little mind. And then um, I'd ask my mom about it. Because I was always asking her about the damn book I couldn't read. And she's like, no, no, it stands for Jerusalem's lot. It's a place. And I was like, ow. So it's not like Salem, Massachusetts. And she's like, no. And I'm like, it's not about witches, and it's not about someone's lot in life as a witch. <laughs> and she's like, no. And I'm like, oh. So I was so disappointed. But then to find out that it, the short story, Jerusalem's Lot, 
uh, precedes this, then mm. I was like, I read that and I was like, okay, I get it. This is a place. Okay, now I'm happy. It is a place. And it's about vampires or, or something, this mm-hmm. creepy thing infecting the basement of this house. And I was like, okay, I, now I was into it. And then to find out way later in the Stephen King universe that the place was named after a pig named Jerusalem. I'm like, okay, now it's named after something. So it kind of is a lot in life of the pig named Jerusalem. It really is. And and you really hit the nail on the head about something that I find very fascinating. The vampire as plague is a theme that is represented best when you are doing these Nosferatu ghoulish-like... Uh, I can't remember exactly what the the term was in um, Vampire the Masquerade, but that type of vampire, that revenant type of vampire, mm-hmm. was always cited. And that's the reason why... Not, in Not a Sorgoi. Those are different. Yeah, um, no, I can't remember what it is. I don't know. I was a Bruja, so Ooh. that's a different kind of vampire. Those, as I was going to say, it's totally different than a, a vampire that stomps in with their like $800 fucking new rock boots and owns the club all of a sudden. <laughs> um, yeah. And there was, there, there was call to why these vampires looked. It's funny because when I was a kid, I always interpreted it as, oh, they look like bats. And to me, that worked because uh, bats could be thought as carriers of plague as well, with like rabies and shit. They behave However, like rats, by they stowing away in ships. Exactly, but of course, then as you grew up, people would tell you constantly, "Oh, they're they're meant to look more rat-like because it's supposed to be these this example of plague that like ravished Europe and the rats that carried it, and and so these." harbingers of death and plague and disease can turn into swarms of rats and and shit like that and the bats work too because renfield definitely acts like he's suffering some sort of encephalitis and Mm. rabies carried by bats like it all it Mm -hmm. still works in my mind yeah and 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 i guess like just because of my brain um i always thought it looked cooler when vampires were more like bats than rats but like i'm fine with either i really like I like the 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 revenant ghoulish like thing, batter rat, whatever your base animal is. I'm here for it, but um, that's how come I find this story fucking fascinating about why they changed it to more of a ghoul like Barlow. Why he changed from like, for lack of a, a better term, the shorthand of an Anne Rice vampire. Why did he change to a Nosferatu type vampire when the story? is vampire as plague. We still get that aristocratic vampire feel from Straker, though, because he's not yes. a Renfield necessarily. No, he's not. And you're very right about that. That character sort of exudes that um, old world sophistication that I think would have, like Barlow would have occupied yeah. if they had left the character intact. Yeah. And like you were saying, they did combine a lot of characters. They did, I'd yeah. I read it so long ago, I don't remember there being such a fantastic cast. Because quite honestly, I remember Barlow. Mm-hmm. I remember Ben Mears very vividly. First in a long line of Stephen King writers as protagonists that I really appreciated and enjoy. Mark Petrie. And the little kid at the window, of course, the Glick kids. I remember the Glick kids. Yeah. That's about all I really remembered very clearly from the story because everyone else is just sort of incidental because I wasn't paying attention to 
you know, the greenskeepers and the people that worked in the graveyard and the people that yeah. drove trucks around town helping people out and people that died. All the people that died. Like, I didn't remember all of that. Yeah. Because, man, uh, yeah, a lot of people do die in this. And this idea that this town, this is not a story about a vampire who is trying to, um, like, blend in <laughs> and 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 the the idea that <laughs> that they're building this antique shop in this town i'm like why like you're it's like you're 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 rolling in here not to coexist with these people and feed on them gradually over a long period of time and then perhaps decades later move on you guys are rolling thick into this place, just killing dozens of people. Like, sort of, in a way, like the tall man from Phantasm. I was thinking of that interesting uh, interesting fun fact was uh, in the previous movie, um, the original director on Silver Bullet was going to be... Uh, Don, uh, what's Coscarelli. his name? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and he walked away from it because they had changed some stuff. The the werewolf was not to his liking. And uh, then- I was some semi tempted. There's Scaricon coming up in Rochester, New York, in October, mm-hmm. and Don Coscarelli is going to be there. And part of me, the little fan girl part of me, wants to like scurry on down to Rochester <laughs> and just be like, there he is. There he is. Just back. leave. Just like point at him and leave. Um, <laughs> and and there's um, aspects of the antique house that reminds me a lot of the funeral parlor in Phantasm in this. A lot. And like you could have cast Angus Scrim in this. And then I oh, always yeah. thought like this, I'm so glad that Needful Things exists as a book and a film because Leland Gaunt opening his antique shop Needful Things is you, you know, I look at the, the antique shop in this and I want more of that and I get more of that. Mm. If you would have cast Leland Gaunt as, or Angus Scrim as Leland Gaunt, I would have just been in hog heaven. Mm. That would have been perfect to me. But yeah, it is really similar. And I think that uh, who they have here playing Richard Straker is James Mason. And he reminds yeah. me a lot of um, a shorter Angus Scrim that's not as scary. Yeah, he's definitely, this guy sort of exudes, like I said, that old world sophistication. He seems like a, a gentleman's gentleman. Like Edmund Perdom in Pieces. Mm. I forget the name of the, the character, the, the principal. But yeah. yeah, his character, that's who he reminded me of a lot in mm. looks and tenure. And Oh yeah, tailored suits, bowler hats. Like this is a, a like, I think when we're introduced to this character, he is is putting away just like a barrel full of canes. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this, this totally tracks to me this guy has this many canes <laughs> <laughs> when we meet ben mirrors on the other hand it leaves something lacking because he has rolled into town much like striker and barlow mm-hmm. with his own little idea of how of what he's going to do in this town and how he's going to use it to a certain extent he has memories of the house up on the hill mm. and i feel like a little ripped off here because oh. we don't really get a much like he has he talks about what he thought of the house as a kid and that he grew up there but mm. we don't get deep in and for a goddamn well four hour film yeah like we wouldn't have time to talk a little bit more about young ben mears yeah they spend a lot of time talking about you know extramarital affairs between characters that are just going to leave town midway through and it's like what does this matter no exactly it seems to really waste a lot of time in the fluff of those sorts of things like i don't really care about whose daughter he's going to date and who she used to date i don't really care you can mention that that's all i need 
It made me just like, it struck me that uh, Ben Mears was the type of dude that became a writer to pick up girls because like, that's how he swooped in. And I was like, I saw myself in that. I was like, yeah, it's the only reason why I do anything oh is to just pick up women. I was like, I was like, Hey everybody, I'm Wes Snipe. I write comic books. You know that, right? Anyway. I'm shocked you don't play guitar. <laughs> I thought about buying a guitar and just having a lot of pictures on my Instagram with me holding it. And I thought that might be kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. But, but, uh, <laughs> Ben Mears, you know, he's a pretty Barney Rubble looking dude. <laughs> was, I thought that so many times. So, full disclosure, Lids and I didn't watch this movie together. Oh um, my God. Yeah. That is, I was going to bring that up with the whole us being able to watch TV on our own at night, like grown ups. Yeah. That's what we did because this is a four hour. Joint. Yeah. And, and I don't know, recently, just, you know, if you want, listen, if you want me to pull the curtains back, uh, if you, uh, I've been sleeping in a lot, and so our days have been longer, and this was a long movie anyway, and it was just kind of like, we don't want to get out of here at, like, fucking 6 p.m. Like, Lydia has a life. (laughs) Yeah, and Wes has a life, too. I don't want him to not sleep, although you didn't today. I didn't. I I was just like, I was like, this fucking figures. We have no movie to watch together, and I'm like... You can sleep in all you want. Yeah, and it's 6.30 in the morning. I'm just, like, lying in bed, like, just like, well, I can't sleep, so whatever. I was texting you. I'm like, Lids, I'm bored. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, like, the planning was, like, because this is so long, and... mm -hmm. We should, like, prepare ourselves by watching films outside of the day of recording, mm-hmm. just in case of days, like, sleep-in days, or if yeah. I'm busy, because it's vacation time. It might be staying, it might be Stephen King of Palooza, but it is also summer fucking time, so we do have, like, yeah. vacations and go places, and there's and, conventions. And and I honestly really wanted to do Salem's Lot for Stephen King of Palooza, but the only reason why we haven't done it before was because of the fact that I knew that it was so long. Yeah. And I was kind of like, I don't want to make Lydia sit through. Like, I know you won't complain because you're a fucking adult and this is for... No, and I watched it when I was younger with my mom. And it was like, we watched it over two days and Mm -hmm. like, it made it comfortable. So I don't remember it being like arduously long. And I like the story. Yeah, me too. And honestly, like, this is, this is, this movie is just a, a, a little north of three hours. And it's, it's not a hard set. The only thing is, and I agree with you about, um, mirrors is is i would have done with more character development about why he rolled into town although because my take on it as someone who never read the books who don't i don't have any of this sort of juicy detail and writing um it's it, it was like this seems like stephen king took two elements of his own life and put them both into one movie and i'm wondering like to me my take is like this is so unrelatable mm-hmm. career writer is such an unrelatable this idea that this guy is just like rolling into town to write a book and i was like how can you so what do you do you just like drive around like a nomad and you just like such a win in this he only had like two books under his belt at this point and again i was like who's I was paying like, for this i was gonna say i was like are you one of those writers in the 70s that had like an obnoxious publishing deal where you got like six figures and they're just like, well, you know, and again, I'm just like, this is from the perspective of Stephen King, who 
became a massive fucking success. And his readers reading it in 1979, that tracks. Like, oh, yeah, you have a book or two. Of course you have the money to go and stay in hotels and boarding rooms mm-hmm. in small town America and write whatever you want. And, and, as long yeah. as you want doing it. And, and this idea this idea of like, yeah, I really want to go see that house because that's going to inspire me to do a story that I'm kind of vaguely thinking about. And then I'm just going to fucking just troll on out of here afterwards, I guess. Like, whatever. And then just be and again, like, use your writing to try to get laid. And I'm just kind of like, man, this just, it's its weird. And then the other thing of it is just Stephen King is Monster Kid. Because he gets both in here. He's like, here's your adult writer, and here's your Monster Kid. A Monster Kid that would incite jealousy among, like, in, watching it with Chris, he was like, is this this kid's room? I know. It's like, like, like shit. blood red walls and black door frames and all of this fucking universal monster shit and his parents are just like when are you gonna grow out of this stuff i'm like uh when you stop spending ten thousand dollars yeah on all of this fucking memorabilia and shit yeah because like, the looks- kid doesn't have a job yeah i was like this kid as like it looks like if you were to put up like a, a museum of the macabre and weird that's what his room looks like it reminds me of uh photos of the inside of the um room morgue offices yeah. and the old room morgue offices in the yeah. mortuary like that is what it reminds me of <laughs> yeah. and he even has probably a leg up on them to a certain extent yeah. because some of the stuff is really old and definitely like movie memorabilia that we just don't have access to yeah <laughs> toby hooper would have i mean yeah we haven't even mentioned yes this is one of the Let's... greats of horror two greats of horror together i mean we can talk about stephen king and john carpenter's relationships over and over because there's many of those but mm-hmm. toby motherfucking hooper yep famed from eaten alive just <laughs> well yeah i suppose what's more famous is uh texas chainsaw massacre yeah what is slightly slightly more famous yeah and one of those horror movies that so many others not maybe aspire to be but inadvertently mimic or where people's minds go as sort of the the greatest horror movies ever yeah. and some of our greatest antagonists ever and i'm very curious about how much say toby had on this because the interior of that house it looks like the fucking interior it looks as though i was like there's chicken feathers everywhere there's antlers and taxidermy everywhere and And i was like hmm what house does this look like you know what i'm saying no one else could have had any sort of set direction in mind other than him to to make that house the way that it looked yeah Mm -hmm. and 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 like the second we got into the house i'm like because you know you were watching a movie and toby hooper is such a distinctive director some his movies are so I don't think you would confuse his movies for any other movies. Even the last, even like something like Eaten Alive, it's very much still in keeping with his stuff. But watching this, I, w- I was like, oh, I don't really see, I don't see him in this. Like, I don't, like, like every scene I'm just kind of watching, I'm like, yeah, it's all just sort of like well lit interiors and. I mean, the, how, have, the Toby the, Hooper was invited to sit in and direct an episode of General Hospital. Exactly, where you're, where you're just like you want the name of of Toby Hooper, but I felt as though did a bunch of suits sit him down and say like, now Toby, like we're going to be doing this movie, but listen, this is going to be on TV. We don't want any of that weird, uh, freaky face stuff that you're known for. All right, so none of that, uh, and 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 so I just couldn't see him anywhere in this. 
the last 30 minutes of this movie, I'm like, okay, I see him all over this. Yeah, like, and there's a few shots at the beginning where it's like they're using handheld and stuff like that. Mm. So he's using some more innovative DIY techniques in amongst mm. all of this sort of Vaseline on your fucking lens steady cam stuff well i guess yeah. it's not steady cam back then but. no it's not steady cam but you know he it's uh, all dollied yeah exactly yeah. and but that's a really good example it's a, it's like you know it's a toby hoover movie but i'm looking for those tracking shots i'm looking for that grainy shaky 16 millimeter i'm looking for um just that dense and looking for character development by showing not telling yeah. where this is a lot of tell man a lot, a of, tell. lot of i made my tell. hand do the flapping Your gums thing yeah little muppet thing because yeah, thing. Cause, yeah. But a lot of that. Mears is in town. This is, by the way, not his first time here. He grew up here. See, that's the thing. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna geek out a little bit before we can get into the real meat and the guts of this film. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I felt a little ripped off not having enough Ben Mears backstory. Mm. And we sort of get this idea that, like, okay, he's been around the house when he was a kid. Um, he's transfixed with it for whatever reason. Mm. But we don't really understand how evil the house is. They keep showing the house and it's like, mm. yeah, it's a scary looking house. They show it from like the worm's eye view. There's some tilts in there. You get it. It's yeah. It's the a same house. Yeah. But, but, it could, but I was like, hey, it kind of looks like it could be like the monstrous house. It could be any house, right? Like it's later on in the film. He's asking quite seriously to this teacher. Mm. Can a house be evil? And it's a really great line. It's a really great scene in the film, but it doesn't have the weight because we aren't convinced sitting on our couches that this house is evil at all. No. And I'll be honest with you. My take on this was, was I have always been in conflict with this story as the TV movie has presented it because this is telling me over and over and over again that this house is evil. Whereas... I have not gotten a single sense whatsoever that this is anything other than an old dilapidated house that has a vampire in it. That's <laughs> yeah. why the house, I was like, you could fucking put, you could put Barlow in Pee Wee's Playhouse and that place would be just as evil. Yeah. Like, you know what I'm saying? So like this whole idea, it's not like when you're looking at the Amityville house. and Where you're just, that house is a character. That Yeah, exactly, right? This house is like, it, it's listen, the art direction inside of that house is fucking, mm, it's immaculate, and it looks fucking great. Which, on another BookTube video, Merce, from Harpies in the Trees, one of the questions that she had proposed in this other horror tag was about these horror characters, mm. and one of her characters was the Amityville house, because it's oh. so much of a character that she named it as an evil character. From horror, I would I would agree with that. The Amityville House is the fucking that's the villain. It is. It's more so than the, the hog. That's the in house the in Psycho is a character of itself too. Agreed. It's not quite as much as the Ocean Avenue House because that is a c- character. But even in Psycho, like they go through such length of description of everything from the fruit cellar to the the way that the the house overlooked the hotel. Yeah, like you know what I mean. Like, which are these sort of humanizing traits that are missing entirely in this film and i feel badly for anyone that hasn't read the book so what i'm gonna do i'm excited is i'm gonna read you a little bit of the book Mm. this is a master class as i've understood since i was a child because one of the first books about stephen king i ever read was uh dance macabre and they talk about it in there and a lot of other teachers have talked about it uh the introduction of the house this is what establishes the house as a character makes it scary we understand that ben isn't just scared of this house this house has it out for him in a certain way and it is hypnotic and it is drawing people to it and it makes a lot more fucking sense that 
the Ben Mears in the film says, do you believe a house can be evil? Hmm. That you irrevocably answer with a resounding yes, Ben, the house is evil. Hmm. Where without this background of the movie, without getting to know the house the way that you do in the book, the way that you're introduced to the house in the book, you just don't get it in the film. So you're mm. kind of like, I don't know, Ben, you're a little bit of a pansy. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> like, that's what it feels like. But here we have what I'd said is a masterclass in writing in a way. Uh, I was just, it was described to me as a way why Stephen King can make a house so scary. Mm. Uh, pay attention to some of the words he's using to describe the house and the personifications that he's using to make it feel human and sinister. Mm. The house itself looked toward town. It was huge and rambling and sagging, its windows haphazardly boarded shut, giving it that sinister look of all old houses that had been empty for a long time. The paint had been weathered away, giving the house a uniform gray look. Windstorms had ripped many of the shingles off, and a heavy snowfall had punched in the west corner of the main roof, giving it a slumped, hunched look. A tattered, no-trespassing sign was nailed to the right-hand newel post. He felt a strong urge to walk up that overgrown path, past the crickets and hoppers that would jump around his shoes, climb the porch, peek between the haphazard boards into the hallway or the front room. Perhaps try the door. If it was unlocked, go in. He swallowed and stared up at the house, almost hypnotized. It stared back at him with an idiot indifference. You walked down the hall smelling wet plaster and rotting wallpaper, and mice would skitter in the walls. There would still be a lot of junk lying around, and you might pick something up, a paperweight maybe, and put it in your pocket. Then at the end of the hall, instead of going through into the kitchen, you would turn left and go upstairs, your feet gritting in the plaster dust that had sifted down from the ceiling over the years. There were fourteen steps, exactly fourteen. But the top one was smaller, out of proportion, as if it had been added to avoid the evil number. At the top of the stairs, you stand on the landing, looking down the hall toward a closed door, and if you walk down the hall toward it, watching as if from outside yourself as the door gets closer and larger, you can reach out your hand and put it on the tarnished silver knob. He turned away from the house, a straw, dry whistle of air slipping from his mouth. Not yet. Later, perhaps, but not yet. For now it was enough to know that all of it was still here. It had waited for him. He put his hands on the hood of his car and looked out over town. He could find out down there who was handling the Marston house and perhaps lease it. The kitchen would make an adequate writing room and he could bunk down in the front parlor. But he wouldn't allow himself to go upstairs. Not unless it had to be done. He got in his car and started it and drove down the hill to Jerusalem's lot. That was chapter one. That's <laughs> chapter one in the book. Not all of chapter one, but the, the, the important part where we get to meet the house. We get to meet Ben. We get to understand the house is fucking evil. Yeah. And that uh, human traits that you were talking about assigned hunched and it stares back like something uh, had the, punched it. Yeah. When was the last time you punched a house? Best? Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> years ago, <laughs> I was drinking. It glares back at him. Mm -hmm. It glares over the town. Yeah. He turns after being hypnotized by it and looks out over the town as it does. Yeah. You know, like he takes on traits of the house while mm -hmm. he's under its power. Yeah, it's 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 an evil fucking house. Yeah, and Stephen King has a knack for doing 
rooms and buildings, 1408 comes to mind. The Shining comes to mind. Describing um, shutters or, or shingles as crooked teeth, mm. things like that. Yeah, he's, he's the master at that, at making a house become a character. And it's a shame because Mears in this story definitely doesn't seem, uh, it's almost as if, uh, in the TV, sh- in the TV movie, uh, the character is not allowed to be elevated to the type of writer that King is because even, even it, it, when they read his excerpts, the description that Mears writes of the house, I mean, I was just like, one more draft, dude. Like, it's not, it's not there yet. It's, it was so. Why didn't they read that? They could have read that. I, I was like, listen, in a movie, the three hours, the three hours long, you can take two minutes and read that paragraph of, like, and how cool would that be to have, like people who read Salem's Law to be like, oh my god, like they're basically just saying that this character is king. Yeah. Um. So Mir showing up uh, with this agenda. But almost as if this person – see, this is like where this element of the story breaks down. And I'd be real – I'm very interested. I might fucking pick me up a copy ah, of oh, Salem's Lot because nice. there's something about this that I want to love so much more. I love this movie. I love this story. But there's something about the way that that house is described in the book and how in the movie it's just – no one seems to really agree that this house is evil. This is not like you're going to your t- a town and it's this shared secret that no one talks about. Mm-hmm. It's really just kind of like everyone just like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Like seriously, not even like, I don't know what you're talking about, evil house. It's not that. It's really um, it, 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 that um, familiar town that has a secret that Stephen King writes so well is not present and i guess i just kind of want that and that's how come this entire thing to me is like this story is about a vampire that comes to town and and kills people that's what the story is about so whether this house is evil or not is completely fucking irrelevant to the story whereas i feel like in the book it's not i feel like this house in the book has a vampire drawn to it because of what kind of house it is. This vampire could have moved anywhere. Mm-hmm. Why would it come to this dirtbag rural town? And and even though um, Straker is going to sort of <laughs> kind of explain it as, well, we could, you know, we could have a, a, a rather successful antique shop here in this small town. I'm like, what are you talking about? This makes no sense why you would come here. But if the house was evil... And it had drawn Barlow to it. And then Barlow brings them and then they just concoct whatever logical reason they want for it. Or there was prominence, which I don't know how noticeable the Stephen King universe would have been to the casual reader in 1979. Mm. But him having stories that had to do with this house and reading Mm. Jerusalem's Lot, or even like in 85, let's say, reading Jerusalem's Lot and reading One for the Road, which is the prequel and sequel. Mm. of sort of of Salem's lot because uh, return to Salem's lot doesn't doesn't figure into that um having it explained as a house that has drawn evil for centuries and built upon a foundation of evil and having like this rats in the wall sort of feel to mm. it uh even before the 
stories that had created it as the Marston House in people's mm-hmm. minds. It had a totally different name before that. Castle Wade, I think, or mm. something like that. Okay, okay. And so it did have a whole lore before that, but it's completely aborted in this yeah. film, unfortunately. So it just doesn't hold that same sort of weight. Mm-hmm. Like, we get it, and we're told, not shown, how evil the house is or how it draws people, or at least it draws Ben, because no one else seems to really fucking care about it. Yeah, I, w- I would definitely agree with that. Um, there is uh, an interesting tap dance that this movie does with bringing in a, a multitude of characters to try to sort of flesh out the town a little bit. And there's even uh, plots that sort of like, I, you know, I was being kind of, I don't know if I said this on the show. I don't know if we were recording when I said this, but one, one of the subplots is kind of like midway through in the first half of the movie, which would have technically been like the first episode. And, and it's just kind of like abandoned and it never goes like, it's just done after that. And then one of those characters is killed and I'm just like, eh, seems like a, why did we spend so much screen time on this when we could have, you know, more conversations with his old teacher or something like that. They could have done more with that. I feel more library scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, if this is a movie in which for, I'm guessing for budgetary reasons, you're telling and not showing a lot of things. Well, then go ahead and show it. But then, yeah, more library scenes. Then. Less picnic scenes. Less make-out point scenes. So weird because it strikes me as like, um, uh, Ben is a total Barney Rubble. Like he is, he is a Barney Rubble like you read about. Like, yeah. like, like <laughs> he is the de- he is the new like height of Barney Rubble that we've watched on this show. Yeah, and and this idea of like everyone looking at him like, oh, what a dashing writer. I'm like. Is this just the sign of the times? Like, I just don't think he's that hot. Like, I just, I don't get it. Sign of the times. The other sign of the times is having a woman that says, I'm a strong woman and I speak my mind. And if you don't like it, you can shove out. And everyone else jumping to her aid all of the time and not letting her do a fucking thing. And her wearing high heels everywhere she goes. So she's so much of her own woman, but everyone still fucking takes care of her, protects her, and hardly lets her make a goddamn decision. Listen. Sign of the times. Sign of the time. She just wants to lay in the grass and draw pineapples, and you can't take that away from her. No, because she's a strong woman and she speaks her mind. Is and that okay? Who, who also who also <laughs> likes this guy's author or likes this guy as an author hasn't finished the second book of his that she's read and can't remember the first one. <laughs> Fantastic. I, I was just like, <clears throat> pardon me. It's very Can funny. Get you water? Do you want water? No, this mm-hmm. is perfect. Um, (laughs) so when we're introduced to these casts of characters, I find that we do linger on certain people, but yeah, for the most part, like a lot of the first half of the movie is just like watching Ben try to score by being a writer. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. And uh, and we do meet, um, was Ned Tibbets? Is that his name? Yeah. Ned Tibbets? Tibbets? The, uh, plumber. Yeah, and he's uh, uh, Susan is is uh, we should give our our strong independent woman uh, a name. Yes, she Susan uh, Norton. Yeah, and she is a, a, a school teacher, and that's her ex boyfriend. And it's one of those things where, you know, they probably have like an on again, off again relationship. But this dashing writer has just f- just come in here with all kinds of crazy notions, like I'm gonna write about a house and. I guess I live out of my car. Maybe I have a house. We don't know. No, they established way too late in the story for my liking that he's single. Because, well, no, actually, I'll take that back. Never mind. Lives out of his car, maybe. Lives out of his car and 
also his his book jacket says that he's married with no kids, but then also just tosses out kind of cavalier that his wife is dead and doesn't I, like yes in the narrative it's been two years, but there doesn't seem to be any reason that he should have been married and any reason why his wife should have died because he he's, and he just jumped in his car after that and started writing books on the road I guess but I, I also is very interesting because it gives you a window about the type of writer Stephen King is right he's very much a writer that had the money and the time to be able to like I can't just write about this house I gotta go look at it and I gotta and I gotta like go stand on the property and look out and see how the house looks. That's up. how a lot of writers operated. Even um, Richard Layman, who isn't as big of a name as Stephen King, is bigger in horror like circles and horror writers association for sure because he was the president for a time and died in presidency. But he and he wrote many many books and people would accuse it of being very pulpy and very gratuitous and very sexy. It's always very sex romp and super gory. But he would, for these things that people might see as pulpy, would actually go to a lot of places and do a hell of a lot of research. A hell of a lot of research. That people fucking Google things now, unfortunately. Mm. Or, like, Google Maps things. Or, Mm. you know, go and read another person's account on Lonely Planet of what it's like to go to this place instead of actually going on it. So they're not writing what they know. They're writing what they've been told. So Mm. I I can see where he's coming from because of so many other writers that do it and it's not just him with his fucking megabucks but he pulls it off in something like 1408 because that's somebody that's paid to go around town writing about shit but that's his job right to go and investigate these haunted places so it makes sense that he's traveling does his own research and there seems to be more of and also like this guy's constantly hawking his books right whereas this guy kind of Again, it's more ambiguous. I think it's hard for some people. It's hard for me to understand because uh, I'm not a I'm not an author, and I'm certainly wasn't an author in the 1970s. So I don't really know what that was like. Where you're just you've sold a couple of books. I know that those types of book deals where you're like you're going to write one or two books for this publishing house, and we're going to give you X amount of money to do that, and we're going to just give you that money, and then we kind of expect you to. To write that book. And, and to also make the return on that because it's uh, not as o- commonly known that they're writing against their advance. Mm-hmm. So if you're given an, a six-figure advance, you have to make them six figures in book yeah. sales or else you owe it back. So I'm, I'm guessing this guy was super successful, right? Because um, little Susan Norton in in the middle of nowhere is reading his books. So it's got to be popular. Yeah. So he was probably granted like a huge advance, let alone maybe death insurance money. It was possible. But he definitely lives that nomad writer lifestyle that I think, um, for me, is very much in keeping with like, when Stephen King writes writer characters, they're always just like... He's rambling man. Yeah, exactly. I was like, they're like, um, it's like Kung Fu. It's like they're Kane and they just wander the world like challenging dojos and shit. Yeah, they have no idea, so they go to a cottage. Who can afford to go to a goddamn cottage when you got no ideas? Not I. <laughs> I do go to my cottage sometimes to write. Yeah, well, you own the cottage. We do. You're not, like, renting a cottage. No, I'm yeah. not. But, like, uh, since that place scares me, if I need to write something that evokes fear, I like to be in a place that scares me. 
We had watched some of the uh, highlights, some some bits from the new Blair Witch game this morning. It reminded me of you. Ooh. You will be very scared playing that. Oh, I'm I'm like already too scared to like really watch those trailers. Like it's too because I'm like. I don't want to fucking... I feel like maybe I'll like watch Chris play or something. I don't know if I want to actually play it. Because I might... I don't know if I want to actually play it. <laughs> I love that. I want to talk about the introduction to the the vampire of it all. Because we've been... We've been... You know... We've been talking about this for a little bit. Barlow shows up in a crate like so many vampires do. Yeah. And this crate is very cold. And it keeps getting colder. And what I like about this is it really evokes this, um, again, sense of plague and disease and death that's coming. This weird cold spot that seems to be growing. Not it's Because it starts with just like, oh, the crate's kind of cold. To the entire truck's cold. The front of the cab is cold. This crate is now too cold to touch. Which supports your theory of this isn't an evil house. It's a house with a vampire in it. Yeah. And that's what's scary because Mike Ryerson and Ned Tibbetts, who are contracted to bring this mm-hmm. to the house mm-hmm. by the moving guy who is having some affair problems with his wife. His, his wife. Shit. Yeah, his wife and the funny neighbor from... Uh, Anyway, it's the funny neighbor from some movie that I can't remember is like involved. Herb Tarlick from WKRP. I think that I think it's the same guy, but I'm not really sure. Yeah, and you're just like uh, anyway. And I was just like, take the gun away from him. Anyway, like sure, there's a real estate agent that deals with the Marston house and has rented it to Barlow. Okay, we get it, but who cares about who he's fucking? I just do not fucking care. Yeah, and the a- guy with the moving company, he could be a guy with the moving company, and that's it. We don't need to know all this other fucking stupidity. I, who cares? But. He has contracted the guy that digs graves, yeah. who is very interesting and doesn't get enough screen time, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. And Ned, who is, as we discussed, the ex-boyfriend, yeah. to carry this in. And they're not afraid of the house. No, they're not afraid of the house at first. They're more afraid of the crate, I think, even. Because they're given instructions to bring the crate into the basement through the bulkhead. And they're given four locks yeah. to lock up various places and the mm-hmm. door, the bulkhead, and everything. Is that to keep people out or to keep Barlow in? What do you think? Depends on who you're talking to. <laughs> and if you're talking to Straker, it's to keep Barlow in. If you're talking to anyone else, it's to keep people away from all the rich shit that they just got shipped to them. Do you feel then that Barlow is literally just like this insatiable bloodsucker that cannot stop himself from feeding voraciously all the time and that's why you need to keep him locked up because maybe they were trying to actually have a life in this town and not just steamroll over the population over the course of like a couple of days could be or maybe he's weak from the journey it's possible and has decided okay when i get home make sure that someone locks me up and so that no one bugs me for a little bit because maybe he'll be too feral too like maybe that's why he's hissing all the time and not talking because he's hungry and weak but don't could you be. worry uh straker has uh boy delivery boy so. delivery i know right <laughs> i think fucking brings the boy wrapped up in like fucking meat paper like it's crazy it's, it's massive massive pedo fear and i mean i don't know every closet I don't know every skeleton Stephen King has in his closet, but many of his stories deal with a fear that hasn't been popularized and was so uh, taboo and made far too quiet for too long is 
boys being predated and the the fear of like the clergy and boy scouts and policemen and other stories and there's like more of a pedo fear in it that isn't explored in the films yeah that's the thing that they're constantly leaving out of like both the it tv movie and the fucking main thing where you're just like yeah 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 and that's a thing a thread in this that isn't you know, that is completely covered. Like the vampire stands in for the plague here. The vampire is also standing in for a, a predator of young boys. Cause that seems to be the number one food of Barlow to start with. Yeah. And this is where we, this is also a big change from a lot of vampire fiction. Sometimes, you know, for example, you know, we watched, uh, 30 days of night. Mm hmm. And they were very adamant about not creating new vampires. Yeah. Where it's punishable. Yeah. Barlow, on the other hand, just is totally fine with making new vampires. It's like they don't know how vampires are made. (laughs) And they're doing this accidentally. Yeah. And it also is interesting because Barlow seems fairly powerful, but he doesn't seem any more powerful than a brand new vampire. They all seem to have like high levels of hypnosis. They all seem to have heightened strength. They can all fly. You know what I mean? So like, it's very interesting. Like, like I would understand if he had, if they were more ghoulish or perhaps weaker or like more of like a bride. Or if their progeny were much weaker. Yeah. They're not. No, they're not. So like, I was just like, why are they all, what is it about Barlow that makes him the head vampire? Per se. And this sequence brings us to that iconic moment where we have we haven't even talked about our like our teen boys or preteen boys that have been like running around this. Because like it's like the was it Glick kids? Yeah, the Glick boys and the younger of the Glick boys. And uh, the what was the kid the main kid's name Mark or something like that? Mark Petrie. Yeah. And Mark Petrie, which is who is our monster kid, uh he basically is just a very studious, very good kid, quiet, likes to basically like constantly build those uh, old uh, monster kits that you used to order in the back of like famous monsters and shit like that. Because he's got all like these monster masks and shit too from like, He was like the kid that ordered all that stuff from the magazines. Yeah. He was that kid. And he's got, and the Glick boys are basically just two, again, good kids. Like they're, and, and they get circumvented, like circumvented, they get uh, cut off. In the woods, one of them gets fed. And then the iconic glass scene. They're constantly scratching at the glass. I love this. It's a very creepy effect. It still is effective now. Uh, This whole sequence is um, mesmerizing to me. And I think it's made even more effective, in my opinion, because it's a child hypnotizing another child. It is. And it's uh, foggy, misty, surreal. It's a good effect. So in a way, you're like, how did they do that? Much like in The Wizard of Oz, when they show out the window and the Mm -hmm. the whirlwind is going on around the house and Dorothy's Mm -hmm. seeing all these things, the flying monkeys and the witch and all that. Um, It it was a cool effect back then. And this is a cool effect in 1979, for sure. And that scritching sound that the kid is making at the window, not speaking, just looking and scratching at the window in a very let me in mm-hmm. sort of way. That sort of uh, tentative fear is is working really well in this movie, as well as it works you know, when Ellie wants in, uh, in Let Me In and starts bleeding out. Like, yeah. It is a very surreal moment. 
when it is so simple. It goes on for quite a while too. Yeah, it's a nice long sequence, and it's this. There's two sequences. There's there's technically uh, yeah. There's two main sequences about like vampire children at the window and shit. And both sequences are absolutely beautiful to me, and they really. That is when you, for the first half of this movie, you're spending a lot of time with some characters uh, that are fine. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. There's hints of vampirism. There's hints of of what is going on, the evil that is coming to this town. But when you're getting to this moment, when the plague of vampires starts to basically erupt into the streets and all of these characters you get the you start to understand that all of these characters you've been spending 90 minutes with so far are going to succumb to this vampirism because this is going to run rampant this this notion that they were going to hold an antique shop like why anyway i don't want to keep going on about well, that no it's like precocious precocious anemia is what they keep they're being diagnosed with which is surreal. Like, mm-hmm. might as well be diagnosed with porphyria. Like, it's not <laughs> something that's deadly to that extent. And they keep... There are many shots that we get to see of bites on the neck, but they're healed very quickly, usually by the next visit, by whatever, whoever has made them into a vampire. So those don't get figured in in these autopsies. It's just, well, they just all of a sudden had sudden-onset anemia... But everyone seems to be succumbing to this. It to it, and it all starts kind of the same weakness, followed by comments about vivid, strange dreams where they're visited by friends or family that they know, um, and once they're under that spell, it's kind of too late. There is a there is a I, I said before that you know this pl- this plot is tap dancing with two very strong narratives that I feel are like competing. And in this sense, one of the things is the st- not, not just the idea of like the house is evil. And also there's a vampire in the, in the house. Also this idea of Ben, who's clearly the protagonist, but then there's this whole B plot with Mark where you're kind of wondering, I was like, this is like, this so could be fright night or lost boys or, um, the gate, any sort of kid-friendly horror movie where the kids are privy. Silver Bullet, where the no, kids really. exactly is are 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 privy to the knowledge of the supernatural because the you know the kids are more the idea being that kids like have have stayed open to this idea because adulthood hasn't beaten out uh, fantasy from them yet. Uh, where and, and so I'm finding myself, I'm always drawn towards stories of like kids and fantasy. So I'm very interested. And I was like, how's Mark going to do this? And so him like, him like making stakes. Cause like, I was like, this is the perfect kid. No. And he's the one that like first sort of figures it out for us anyway. Cause yeah. he's takes that cross off of one of his dioramas and holds it up against the glick yeah. boy at the window mm-hmm. and it works. Mm-hmm. Right. It works great. actually, yeah. And the crosses thing does work really well against very well every vampire in this. Yeah, it's almost like uh, well, except the end. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's almost like from dusk till dawn, in which it's like it could just be anything. You could take two popsicle popsicle sticks. Yeah, and it doesn't tongue need, depressors like Ben Mears yeah, does. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. In his panic. In his panic, and 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 not only does it work, it super works. It's like works better than. 
It know. works like Evil Ed on Fright Night. I was going to say, like, putting it on the forehead, and he's like, ah. Yeah. yeah, which, in my mind, I was, like, watching that, and I'm like, I guess this would have been the first time I would have seen a burnt cross, because I went as a vampire with a burnt cross on my forehead for Halloween one year, but in my mind, I'm like, this is like Evil Ed. That's, yeah. that's who got burnt on the head. Mm-hmm. But this would have been... For that, for sure, as far as getting burnt on the head. Yeah, true. This is almost a decade after the fact. Mm-hmm. You're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but yeah, um, this thing has wiped out entire households. This kid knows that it's a vampire, whether he can tell anyone else that or not. Ben Mears is starting to ask people, like, well, do you think it could be vampires, maybe? Mm-hmm. His old teacher... Um, seems to get in on this. Who seems to be his friend. I like this idea of him going back to his childhood town. And he's like, I'm going to be friends with the old teacher now. It's interesting. And also, but like he has some good inside dope. Not only is he a town elder at this point, but uh, like, you know, much like in uh, The Mist, this is a teacher that's seen a lot of these now adults were students in his class at one point. Yeah, exactly. Um, So it's really cool to have that uh, narrative. That guy, um, we don't really see exactly what happens to him, but he gets a heart attack uh, when he tries to like fight off the old groundskeeper and shit. That's the other interesting thing. And I don't know if this is expressed in the book, but when one of the Glick boys becomes a vampire, he hypnotizes and comes out of that coffin in the daytime. Now, you could argue that he's six feet under and maybe not in direct sunlight, but he seems to have all of his powers. That's something that in vampire lore, it ebbs and flows. Like sometimes vampires can't even, it's basically like battery acid. And other times it's just they're depowered. Yeah, no, or they are forced into torpor where they can't even move, whether they would have all their powers or not. And where some, like, you can put a stake through their heart and they're not going to move at all, which mm-hmm. seems to be the case with most of these. Mm-hmm. Or they can at least fend you off in, mm-hmm. like, sort of a sleepwalky kind of way. Yeah, they're, they're, they're droopy, though, right? Yeah. Apparently. No, yeah. Because, like, but I think that they normally, it's interesting because, like, even Barlow seems to sleep completely soundly, like, almost like Dracula or Carmilla yeah. or, or any of those uh, famous guys. But, uh, for, for it was just very interesting, but I th- I'm gonna try because I was like, Can they go out in the daytime? I'm very confused. Clearly, not because Barlow can't operate in the daytime whatsoever. No, and, and none of the other ones do. No, they all basically stay in the what becomes the it's a root cellar, but it basically be, it, is their crypt. Yeah, uh, no one else gets a coffin because well, I guess we'll work up to that, but uh, <laughs> I guess they don't need a coffin. Yeah, and, comfortable, and also it's it's heavily implied that even the vampires that you see in the we're skipping all over, but like even the vampires that you see in the root cellar are not all of them. No. There's still plenty of other vampires be, and, and that, in their own va- basements. That's what I'm guessing. Yeah, that's what that's, other people's basements yeah. or their basements. Mark's parents get fucking one shot of Barbara. Like, like this this whole like, I think they're dead. I'm like, all he did was kind of clump their heads together like the three stooges, which is very comical. I found that whole sequence way too slapsticky, mm-hmm. and not as not very effective. Although the child actor playing Mark Petrie did mm-hmm. a great job of convincing us that he felt terrible and terrified. Yeah, uh, the Callahan, where it was basically be like faith versus faith. And that's what they basically try to like have him. Apparently, he's a larger character in the book. I don't 
Like, but I don't know because I've never read it. But uh, yeah, that scene is very comical. It, like, you do not get the sense that his parents would have died from that. I mean, you could be like, well, Barlow's pretty strong. He is. But again, he just kind of clunks them yeah, together. Yeah, human skulls are pretty strong too. Yeah, and but I love that sequence just because of how fucking good Barlow looks. You don't see him until the second half of this movie. You get one quick look at him when he attacks uh, Ted in the in the prison cell. Yeah. But the, she looks good and shadowy, and it's it's menacing, if anything. But but this brightly lit brightly dinner lit, table, th- th- um, just the, the 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 gaunt features, the again this bluish. It almost seems like it glows. His eyes glow, but he almost himself looks like he has almost like a neon quality to him. It's fucking mesmerizing. I love the look of Barlow in this movie. It's one of my favorite... Yeah, so like obviously the Nosferatu look of the vampire is something that I really like, but in terms of how you can make a vampire look like yeah, this, yeah. this is one of my favorites of He's all so time. He's so very big and menacing and powerful and toothy mm-hmm. and animalistic. Yeah. The eyes lend to that too. They did have an ophthalmologist on set because many people do wear... These um, these probably glass lenses. Yeah, they have varying degrees of vampirism in here, denoted by the eyes mostly, and fangs or lack thereof. Because some people only have a little bit of fangs, some people have a lot of fangs. I guess they're all working toward the full fang look of Barlow. But yeah, this is like kind of comical and unfortunately not as hard hitting as some of the other. Things, but they cut away from a lot of the gore every time someone goes to bite somebody's neck. They pretty much cut away from it. Yeah, I'm, and that has to just be because it was on TV. TV yeah, and so you're going uh, because with those rows of serrated, they almost look silver. Yeah, teeth. You just want them to just pull like a huge chunk of flesh. If they remade this movie now. Like in the same vein as like the It movies and stuff like that, and you could have that level of violence in it. Like I think people would really fucking dig it. I think it would come off really well. Although I would be interested to know if they would make Barlow more like the he is in the book and not like how they made him in the TV movie. I think it would be nice to just remake this movie, not remake the book mm. or make another movie based on the book. It would be mm-hmm. nice to see a remake of this because we had both kind of lamented the aspect ratio of this. Yeah, that's the other thing. Like, I would like a like a nice, cool, kick-ass release of this. I have the Blu-ray, but it's not the best thing ever, honestly. We had um, rented it off iTunes. I I bought it on iTunes actually because I know I want to watch it again. But it yeah, it was worth it. It looked really good. Sure, it looked good, but it's that aspect ratio thing that's annoying. Um, one thing I did like is the uh, soundtrack of this. I know we've sort of been um, ragging on these old timey eighties ish soundtracks that are like almost like we keep making fun of, or I keep making fun of Danger Bay, um, <laughs> but it works so well in this mm-hmm. this orchestral mm-hmm. soundtrack. The main theme of this film is really good too. Mm-hmm. So Mark is, by all accounts, an orphan at this point, and I guess everyone else is just too wrapped up in everyone else dying that no one seems to notice that Mark has no parents right now. I think 
I think that's what it is. I mean, even their law enforcement is like worse than Keystone cops because they kind of follow up on things, but also not really. And they're, they get, they fucking leave. Like, like the fucking police chief like leaves. He packs up his house, even his rake and everything and leaves town. His, his fucking fan. They go get that fan in there. Like, um, he gets the fuck out of there and just gives Ben his gun. He was like, here, you're like, like uh, in my mind, I'm just like, so is he the, he's like, you're the law in this town now. Here you go. Yeah. And, and, and this, like, most of the time in movies like this, we can even go back to just Silver Bullet. Most of the time in films like this, the, the, the basic story structure is supernatural thing that the modern world has forgotten about has, is real. And it is affecting this town and people are dying. Children or a town outcast or a group of outcasts discover this truth. No one believes them. They defeat this truth. This story is not like that. This story is much like uh, if you guys have ever seen. Oh, we covered it on the show. If you guys have ever seen Cairo, which Pulse, this changes from we know a secret and there's a vampire in this house to basically vampire apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. And and it becomes everyone knows that these vampires are real. Nobody, nobody is thinking that the vampires are not real. Susan, her parents, uh, his teacher, all the characters, all the characters that you've met have either been turned into vampires or believe that the vampires are here. And they try to do everything they can during the day to, to, to tackle this problem. Meanwhile, people are just dropping dead left, right, and center. Yeah, so to a point where everywhere Ben is turning to for help to defeat this, because he knows where the fount of all this evil is now, mm-hmm. definitely coming from the Marston house and definitely coming from Barlow. Everywhere he turns, someone's either dead or running scared. Yeah. And that's when our kid story, B story, converges with our adult story because Susan <laughs> Susan is compelled to go to the house. Yeah, and she realizes this for some like it's I don't know, it's just an interesting thing. People keep breaking into or walking into Ben Mir's room at the boarding house because he doesn't like lock his door. So like the landlady's in there reading what he's writing and people are like snooping around like, his room the, all the time. The homeless guy and also like Ted, there's a scene where Ted is like basically like a fucking jack in the box. He's been hiding in the room with like this fucking like box around him, like like he's solid snake, and just like fucking jumps out and just starts fucking pounding on him. Yeah, pounding. He on doesn't him. lock his door. That's the biggest <laughs> that problem. Was like. This is worse than, like, a fucking hostel. And the landlady never once says to anyone, hey, what are you doing in there? She's like, hey, let me join you. Like, yeah. it's very weird. So Susan Orton is in his room and looks out the window and is like, oh, my God, he can see the Marston house from here. Like, I don't understand why her, what her revelation is here, but. I guess that the implication was supposed to be that the house was literally hypnotizing her. If this was a Bela Lugosi vampire movie, okay. you would see his eyes. Yeah in the moonlight over top the house and, and she's like drawn to it that would be sort of like the end scene of this of this film like yes yes yeah. yes okay <laughs> yes <Yeah. laughs> but uh, and so that was 
my take on it. If we're to believe that the house is evil and it's not just a house that has a vampire in it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> See, if they would have sold me on haunted, scary, evil house magnet that hypnotizes people, then I would have been And, and I agree. Like, I totally this. agree with you. And hypnotism is such a massive part of this. It really is. Like, like this is like... Um, Even the little Glick boy can hypnotize through a window. Hypnotize through a window. This is... uh, They even have lines that are right out of Brides of Dracula. Like, don't look them in the eyes! Because that is... That is a death sentence. You can't look at them at all. That's their entry point with their power. Yeah. Yeah. And and so, like, that is really fascinating because the mysticism around vampires typically speaking people are very comfortable when vampires are like if vampires are very strong if they can turn into mist or wolves or whatever the fuck but for some reason the the thing that i feel like commoners are not comfortable with is the hypnotic aspect of it's almost as if you're looking at the vampire and like well, like that's a little unrealistic you know what i'm saying like and, and so i i definitely feel like that's something that is lost in a lot of vampire movies the hypnotic aspect of those characters a lot of it is just like yeah you know they'll claw your face off like a grizzly bear and they'll bite you and mm-hmm. they're dangerous because even that stuff by the 80s was getting dropped uh, in in more pop culture-y vampire films. Like, obviously, I'm not including, like, Coppola's Dracula or or uh, Interview with a Vampire or things like that. Where they didn't have any qualms about superimposing eyes over things. Exactly. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I'm really t- talking about, you know, stuff like Daybreakers and Underworld yeah. and all this kind of thing where vampires... Vampire is superhero in a weird way yeah. is kind of what they became um, or villain. But maybe it's, it's tough to really get across hypnotism. Except for somebody being like, you're getting very sleepy. I'm getting very sleepy. These are not the droids you're Bar- looking for. Bar- Barlow with like a little watch. He's yeah. like, I am going to make you a little sleepy now. This is what Barlow or people are like, like repeating what the person has told them that they think. It does look like hokey. That. It's like, hard to make it look convincing and hard yeah. to make it. Speaking of not convincing that dead dog. <laughs> They do a pretty good job. I know the, the the poor dead dog in the graveyard, which goes unfound for so long. It's, yeah, it it's literally looks real. like a big rubber toy to me. Like it's probably better for a TV at that time that it looked like a big rubber dog. But he, the house that we do eventually get to mm. see, there's a lot of deadness in there that looks really oh, good. Really good. There is a sequence in that in this because <laughs> Susan's. Dad, who's the doctor, the doctor yeah. in the town. By the way, a really cool scene with Glick's, uh, the Glick boy's mother mm-hmm. in the hospital. I love that sequence quite a bit. Although, again, it's like you are introducing lore very late into the movie because it's like, so the cross was so effective that she evaporated? Weird. Why don't they just put those <laughs> tongue depressors on everybody? Exactly. Because <laughs> it seems like, again, it's one of those things where it's like, these vampires don't seem all that dangerous. Although Barlow seems to be able to, much like in Coppola's Dracula, that cross is only going to do you so much good. No, it's true. Um, he's, he's far more powerful than that. And maybe the Glick mom wasn't powerful enough because of her being progeny. Of um, like a third, yeah. It's, it could there could be of, diminishing or diminishing returns. Could um, be or that she was so fresh, like yeah. so so fresh that she didn't have time to accumulate any power. Where the Glick yeah. boys are are 
even more insidious. And I, I love it when he explores like children as monsters and mm-hmm. things like children of the corn and stuff yeah. like that. Mm, so he does it really good. And I, I, we should do that for the show someday. Mm, I would definitely be down. Maybe for the some, next Stephen King of Palooza. Yeah, I'd be down for some children of the corn for sure. I love that movie. Hmm. But yeah, this, um, the crosses aren't that effective, but we have an idea that stakes are going to be because everyone seems to be now arming themselves with fucking stakes. <laughs> fucking like Mark has like a goddamn Reeboks bag full of them. Like, and I'm just like, th- again, this is like the monster squad, like, like R rated monster squad that I would want. Like it, I was just like, this kid is, was born to make stakes. And he was, he was, uh, he he's like I'm going to the house and Susan intervenes intervenes. Yeah, she is being hypnotized and drawn toward the house, looking for Ben. Mm-hmm. She sees Danny, oh, Danny Glick. Mark. She sees Mark heading into the door. Yeah, and the interior of this house. Uh, and I wanted to say, like the interior, like we get this shot again. Like Toby Hooper is all over this. Not only is is it look like the place is just full of chicken feathers to me. Uh, and I don't know if that's what they are, but it sure fucking looks like it. Chicken feathers and soot and just like, maybe it's flaked wallpaper. It I think that's maybe what it's But it just looks be. like um, down. It just looks like there's something like about lichen it. Lichen and moss. And, yeah. yeah. It, the whole place is gushy. Yeah. And and there's such a... Um, there, the, the paint is so chipped and cracked on everywhere. There's, there is like dimensions to the walls that you wouldn't get in a modern house. And that banister and the staircase right in the the front of the house is so gorgeous. But there is there is a portion of the wall that will be given good use or make good use of that just has all these antlers and stuff. And doesn't that look like the fucking wall behind Leatherface and Texas Chainsaw Massacre? It does very very much, very much. Aside from all the feathers all over and the taxidermy everywhere and the bones, because there's like a taxidermy with bones on it. Yeah. Like another animal has come in and died on the taxidermy, yeah. which is just really weird. Yeah. It makes not a lot of sense. If we had been sold, I'm going to keep harping on this. If we had been sold that this house is some sort of hypnotic magnet of evil. Drawn wildlife there, perhaps. Yeah. Some some deer could have found its way in and died in there. Because we're there's look- antlers on the floor, even. Because I was like, is, is the implication that Barlow's just been eating game? Rats. When did you eat rats, Louie? <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. No, Barlow does not eat rats. See, that's what I'm saying. It's like his first thing that he ate was boy. Yeah. Pure, unadulterated. <laughs> and he gets boys delivered. Yeah. Or is this Straker eating things like Renfield after flies? It's possible. We're not entirely sure. They, 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 they flat out say that Straker is mortal, but. Well, he, they, by they, you mean Ben. Ben, who doesn't really know. Yeah. But, like, he seems to be, again, much more in between than even a character like Renfield was. Yeah. Like, whereas Renfield really has no power beyond that of a human. And it actually, thanks to his insanity, probably less power, yeah. if you think about it. But, I mean, Straker has, like, literally superhuman strength. This is, like, where he's, like, the like Angus Grimm from fucking Phantasm. Because you get that sense of just, like, impossible. Like, he's going to, like, walk down the road with a with a coffin in his arms exactly. or something Harkening like that. Exactly. back to Nosferatu yet again. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, that's what it seems like he would be capable of. But yeah. 
No, it only takes every single bullet in the gun to fell him. <laughs> well, he like shows. He like walks down the stairs with uh, with like what's like a, a table leg, and then as he's dying, he reaches for like uh the banister as if I was like, what is like? Do you really want like your wood implements that bad? Like he's like maybe this one. And again, I. I'm going to sound like a broken record here. If we had been sold that this house was truly this hypnotic magnet of evil, he would have been lamenting his death in the house or like calling to the house for power to carry on. That's what I thought. Mm -hmm. Uh, When he's dying and reaching for the banister like that, it seems so purposeful. Please, house, grant me this one last moment. Yeah, or like, and, and, and it was like, I I actually was going to, if it wasn't so late, I would have texted you. Mm-hmm. But it was pretty late, and I, f- I assumed you were in bed. But like, oh, you can text me about horror movies anytime. Well, you can always just answer when you wake up. True. But I My was going because I hate people. Yeah, I know. Um, I was going to text you because I was like, is him reaching for the banister something that's that seems weird because it was in the book and it was a whole thing in the book and they left it in for whatever reason in this cut of the film. And now it kind of makes no sense because, because I just, when he was doing that, I was like, I feel like they're trying to tell me something. Is there like a telekinetic link between the house and Barlow? So he's like letting Barlow know I'm dying. Yeah. Something or, or like it's see, I was like, is it the house? Is it something specific about the banister? Is it something about the fact that he's dying in this place? And perhaps, you know, his master promised him life everlasting, but perhaps dying in this house means that you are now property of the house. And like a Shirley Jackson story. Exactly. Yes. Yes, exactly. So like, I was curious about that is like, is this almost like a transference of masters is like, He's now, which is what it would feel like if we had been given a little more about the house. If we had been given what we're given in the book, yeah. And I'm just, I've just talked myself into loving that thing that I just said, where I'm like, transference of masters. It sounds so interesting. And I was like, no, that's just nothing because at the end of the day, it's just like him kind of just like reaching to the banister. But it seemed like, why would you film it like that? Why are you filming it like this? Exactly. Like why? Like it doesn't make any sense to me unless it meant something. And I think that like. I was like, I wonder if there's more scenes that got cut out and then the death scene was left this way. And they're like, well, we can't shoot it again. So this is the death scene. They could have cut it short. They could have cut it short. Yes. But, oh, wow. Maybe they didn't think that we'd be sitting here talking about it years later. (laughs) (laughs) Going to the fact that they like lose track of Susan, which I think is like a hilarious plot point to me. Yeah, they sort of take a look for her, but like shrug. They get sidetracked, wouldn't you say? <laughs> because, like, her dad gets impaled on those antlers by Straker. Then that dude dies. And then him and Ben just are like, I don't care about Susan anymore. <laughs> like, I want to go kill Barlow in the root cellar. But, like, it's... I'm sorry, it's funny to me. Because it's like, it's not enough that they just kill Barlow. But he burns down the house and all the line they give, it was just like, go, Susan, God forgive me. I was like, look for 
her, man. They had time. They had ample time. But I guess that they were thinking, you know, and I would have been thinking too, like if I was a little tiny Mark, I'd be like, whoa, wait, kill the head vampire. Like you do in Lost Boys, yeah. right? You go and you kill the lead vampire and everyone else is fine. Yeah. Right? So Susan will come out to us. Yeah. Because it doesn't work like that. No, it doesn't work well, like you know, that. Well, you know, I will add to your fun here. Not only do they burn the house down, it in turn, turn it burns down the whole town. Yeah, the know. entire town burns down. I was down. like, where is... <laughs> what the fuck? And, like, also, can I just, like... <laughs> people writing vampire movies and novels. If you have your characters showing up to kill the vampires who are inactive during the day... Which is totally fine. That tracks as vampire lore. Yeah. Could you not have your fucking characters come to their house at 10 to 6? Like, yeah. at sundown all well, the time? how are you supposed to have that feeling of urgency, Wes? I, 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 was thinking, I, I was thinking about that. I was like, again, with these fucking characters. Like, why didn't they fucking show up at Barlow's house at, like, 9 a.m.? Yeah. And, and, like, take your time. Have a shit. Make dinner. Like, just sit in the place and just, like, look at the coffin and just, like, take, like, again, take your time. That or light the place on fire to start with because then you got the whole Louis thing from yeah. uh, with Vampire where he shows up right at nightfall because he has no other real choice yeah. because he's a vampire. But he kills that whole couple. He though. kills fucking everybody and he just does it fast. Man, that was a cool scene. Mm, super cool scene. It's a fucking cool movie. But he must have been groggy, sleepy. He hadn't even had a coffee. I'm telling you, man. He yeah. hadn't had his, like... he. What he does is he fed coffee to rats, and then he drank the rat's blood. Oh. Caffeinated blood. Because he would. He would. Yeah. He's a good dude, though, Louis. But yeah, no, it, it, there is a sense of urgency here, at least. Because... A lot of this film there really isn't, especially when all the everyone in the town is like, oh, sudden onset anemia is killing everybody, it seems. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah they're droopy. And they're, they're, it seems to be a weird... Um, even the sequence of Ben pulling the coffin out of the root cellar, mm-hmm. they just fucking linger on that scene. And, and, and I was just... I was like, I don't need to see... Ben pulled this whole casket out in real time. Like, I just don't need to see this. Tighten But you did. Up. Tighten it fucking up. But then I keep thinking to myself, I'm like, at what point does this book become, we need to cut this down so it works as a three-hour movie and we're going to cut it up into two 90-minute episodes for TV. But then they're just like, well, now we have all the time in the world. So, yeah, we're going to watch Ben pull this entire fucking casket out in real time. And I was just like, good Lord, it's like watching my friends move. Who wants to do that? No, true. And even with the fact that we have Mark, who has wherewithal and strength, and he's young and he's spry and he knows what he's dealing with, he's injured. And he keeps saying that it's the sun is going down, Mm -hmm. which we only have sort of, we don't have real proof of that. It would be... It would be nice if we had a better proof instead of through that one window, or they would have they could have broke the window, mm-hmm. which is always helpful when you're trying to get light in on a vampire. Mm-hmm. But the, it is taking Ben a long time to deal with a stupid coffin. Yeah. That if it is dark enough, which we don't know, could Barlow pop out of there at any moment with mm-hmm. his super strength or whatever? He does kind of, but he seems Barlow seems to still be in twilight because he's weakened. Yeah. Because uh, I have, I would assume that like if Barlow had the strength and speed to kill Mark's parents by basically clunking their heads together like he's Mo, um, then I would assume that he would be stronger than Ben by a long shot. Yeah, and I and I feel like if 
Ben wouldn't be able to shove him back down into the coffin. No, and we've got some almost hammer-esque vampire hunter stuff going on. This is very hammer, and and it's it's less graphic than uh, Christopher Lee's death in the horror of Dracula. Yeah, but it's kind of the same scene yeah. a little bit. Uh, they love that uh, vampires boiling down to bone stuff. It looks cool. It yeah. looks real cool. Uh, this doesn't eliminate all the other vampires. You still have all your other, the the old favorites. And that's where this becomes like vampire apocalypse. Vampire apocalypse and very reminiscent of Phantasm where they've laid waste to a town, but there's yeah. these like these little underlings still there left are, over. Who are hunting them now because... And, 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 and like for two years. Yeah. Like now it's kind of like we, we catch up to Mark and we catch up to Ben. Susan will get to, but like. <laughs> they're in Guatemala. They've run and. Like, yes. They're filling up. And we see the scene at the very beginning of the film too. Yeah. So they, they've filled up bottles of holy water, mm. which is another thing in the, the chorus of the film films a lot. They do. Um, ben comes to the house with some holy water and he drops it and it breaks right outside of that cellar door Mm. and the ground starts to froth and it's like Mm -hmm. battery acid or like the xenomorph spit Mm -hmm. and it's smoking and i think that's really cool to see some actual like reaction Mm -hmm. and you're wondering is it because barlow has peed there or corrupt Corrupted the area, was I was going to say. Or brought that dirt with him, the way that a Nosferatu would from Transylvania. Or is it? would that happen anywhere that you dropped holy water on that house? Which, you know what? I haven't, don't think I've said this, but if they would have maybe <laughs> instilled in us, the viewer, that this house was evil, <laughs> a little stronger, yeah. and made it something like a magnet, mm-hmm. a, hypnoti- a hypnotic magnet of evil, mm. maybe. Something like that. Something like that. Yeah. That's a that's a far out theory that you've just said for the first time now. I know, right? <laughs> Wish I'd have thought of it earlier. Yeah. Uh, but no, they're in Guatemala now, and I don't know. They're filthy. Yeah. They're, they're like Tomb Raiders now. They do look like, like Tomb Raiders. <laughs> like, seriously. Like, it, I was like, if you told me that this was some sort of post-credit sequence in like an Indiana Jones movie, I would believe you. Um <laughs> And, and I, I'm like, is the implication now, or like Exorcist Two, something weird like that? Uh, yeah. Uh, if if you is the implication that vampires vampirism has spread to like like it is South America is so, it now like, infected? Yeah. Or like, are they just following those two? Yeah, exactly. And because because then it's kind of like. I was like, yeah, the vampires are pretty scary, and they do exhibit power to some degree. But at the same time, you killed one of them with tongue depressors taped together. Mm-hmm. What, like what? And and I would also have to think that it's like there's got to be some of those vampires. So it's a, so Salem's Lot is a population of two thousand plus people. Yeah, I noted that because I was like, what is the maximum amount of vampires you could theoretically have? Let's say not everyone was a vampire some people did definitely leave town yeah um some most of the vampires would have probably been killed uh when barlow was killed the house got burned down and then theoretically the town got burned down but the town got burned down at night yeah so it's like they le- could just go so away how many vampires is it? a thousand vampires is a lot of vampires and they can fly and they can fly yeah it's a lot of fucking vampires so 
I would wonder if, and those vampires need to feed, and they don't seem to have any compunction about not just turning other people into vampires. So in theory, and my implication is like you don't see any other person anywhere in this sequence two years later. And they look like they've been on the fucking run. Why would they need to like never change their clothes? Why would they need to like Well then who would have blessed that holy water? It's it's still there. Oh. Like after after all this time. And maybe like I'm not saying that like that holy water's been there for two years because that's not how Well that doesn't water. work in the Stephen Kingiverse because in the story One for the Road, which is a sequel-ish, mm-hmm. um, someone goes to Jerusalem's lot by accident because the, okay. the road's all overgrown, but they get accidentally lulled there by some force. Okay. And there's other people living in the towns around, and there's a, like a warning basically in the book or in the story of like if you're in Maine in the countryside and you see this town, stay away because it's all vampires. Yeah. No. Well, yeah. It's some um, people die. Don't know where the bodies go. Mm. People go missing. No one. Reports I, I like it because... that they just have like a random vampire town in in. Maine. <laughs> That's what it could be. Just that town stays like that. Yeah. All right. I'll go with that. Because it does seem ridiculous to be like vampire apocalypse, but it is vampire apocalypse at least for Salem's Lot. Yeah, that's what it's. That's what it appears to be. And they find Susan there. Yeah, well, she and, finds them. Yeah, she does, and she's all romantic and sexy. There's no more pineapple drawings. No, she is just about the sexy. Yep, she's just like look at my, look at my, and she's like we can be together and we can do all this stuff. It seems like he's not totally convinced that she's a vampire at first. Until she opens her eyes, but I was like, really, dog? Like, you think that she... Walked there? Your school marm girlfriend yeah. is in Guatemala and she's not a vampire. No, and she isn't wearing, like, a paisley sweater right now, like she normally would. <laughs> yeah. And she's not asking too many questions, because she asks too many questions. Yeah. Because she's a opinionated woman. She's an opinionated woman. Yeah. She's not so much anymore. And, like, what did you think she did walk there when you guys have been on the run and your little beacon of holy water has told you a vampire's around? Yeah. Or is he just being hypnotized? It's true. He could just be hypnotized. But I'll tell you this much. He is a good vampire killer. He kills that one. Yeah. Immediately. Yeah. And, but, like, then it's kind of like the implication is, like, well, this isn't over. They, they're still on the lamb. And there's others, I guess, with her because they said they yeah. found us. So they've they've gotten used to this yeah. two years. It's very Tolkien-esque. Their uh, holy water glows blue yeah, at the presence stink. of uh, orcs. I mean, vampires. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. No, all in all, I really enjoyed it. It doesn't seem like that long of a sit either. And I'm glad that you're going to pick up Salem's Lot. Like I've read the prequel sequel stories. Mm-hmm. I'd be really interested to read it uh, because I love this book. It's a great story, and I'm very interested about the differences in Barlow. That's what I'm primarily interested in. It's yet another vampire for you to add to your stack of vampire lore. Yeah, and I feel like I need to know what I'm fucking talking about. I'm sitting next to, like, a vampire expert. Not really. Yeah, true. I'm really sitting more across from you than next to you. Okay. (laughs) What do we got next for him? Coming up next, we have a little extension to Stephen King of Palooza, and sometimes they come back. I'm very excited because this is going to be fresh. And I we've never watched a Stephen King movie, I don't think, that I've not seen. I've not seen this one. Exactly. And this came out in theaters around a, a time where there was quite a few new adaptations that weren't by John Carpenter. Mm. So it was a neat thing. And a, a lot of them just got sort of 
passed by. They would have been direct to DVD, really, if it would have been any other author's name attached to it. But yeah, I really enjoyed Sometimes They Come Back because it combines sort of the, the vile nature of the creature that Barlow is and the way that this town is infected with the fun of something like Lost Boys or Teen Wolf or like something a little more silly. And, yeah. You know, it's got sort of like it's greasers versus... Like a popcorn horror movie. Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. So it's a lot more fun. So I think we'll have a lot of fun with it. And it's pretty summery, I think. And nice. I really enjoy it very much. And I think that it's sort of unsung. So I'm really excited. And that's not all I am. I'm Wes Knipe. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air.